We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Well, good morning. Uh, I guess I should say Hosanna. It is good to have you here uh, in Bellingham, those of you in Skagit or online or at Boca Raton uh, at the Trinity Church of God. Glad that you're with us as we're in week 14 of this series, Jesus is a Subject. And we've been looking through the book of Mark for 14 weeks as we see that everything in the Old Testament points to and culminates in Jesus. And then from Jesus, everything else is launched. He's the epicenter of everything. Jesus is the subject. And it's been a blast going through the book of Mark. Uh, today kind of ends that series. Next week, yes, the resurrection, but that stands on its own two feet. Uh, But it's been just a lot of fun. This is the beginning of Holy Week. This is uh, in the church calendar. This is Palm Sunday. And I grew up in church. We went to church a lot. My dad was a pastor, so there wasn't a lot of alternative choices for a guy like me. Uh, And on Palm Sunday, uh, we would go to church and we would, you know, as I've been talking about this last couple weeks, we would wave the branches and we'd say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a week later, we would come back to church with new clothes on. A lot of times, mom would have a corsage, a lot of pastels for this big party. And we would say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And then we would sing that great hymn with the staccato chorus, up from the grave, he rose, he rose. Anybody at all know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he rose, hallelujah, Christ. I mean, it's an amazing party. Now, there were a few spiritual people that might find themselves involved in a Maundy Thursday observation or some kind of a, maybe a few more going to a Good Friday service. But for the majority of people, it seemed like they would go from this palm parade and Hosanna, which was a high point, to this pastel party, he is risen up from the grave, he arose, like these two peaks, and missing that the deepest, darkest valley of all human history happened between these two Sundays. And so what I want us to do this week, instead of it being a Palm Sunday sermon, which I've actually talked about for two weeks, I want us to spend some time in this deep, dark valley and not miss what it took to go from Hosanna to He is Risen. Now, if you were with us last week, we left off on the Monday after Palm Sunday. Jesus goes in the temple and he turns over tables. He turns over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And what we saw is that this is what he did in the moment, but it was also symbolic and metaphorical for what he was doing on a greater scale. Yes, he turned over the table of the money changers, but he was turning over the table and turning upside down the entire system, the entire Jewish religious system. 
that everything that had existed up to that point had served its purpose. It was good. It was meaningful. It was wonderful. But now it was culminating. It was being fulfilled, and it was becoming obsolete. The law and the prophets, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Moses was a great, a great man of God. The law came through him. Elijah was a great prophet, but there was someone greater than Moses and Elijah, and it was Jesus. Jesus was the subject. And as far as the priests are concerned, going clear back to Aaron, the first priest, and then the, the, the Le Levitical tribes, and all the way through even the high priest of Caiaphas. Priests had always served a purpose as this go-between between God, uh, the people, and God. But Jesus, the great high priest, was saying, that's been good, but it's fulfilled now because I am the final high priest, and no longer do you need an intermediary to stand between you and God. Now, because of what I do, the great high priest, you have direct access into the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. No reason to go through anybody else. And the sacrificial system, going back to the garden when Adam and Eve, in their sin, find themselves naked and filled with shame and guilt, that God sacrifices innocent animals to cover over their shame. And then in Leviticus, with all the sacrificial system and the day of atonement that happened year after year after year, century after century after century, and even up to that point of the, of the Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice said, this is it. After me, there is no need to kill any more animals. The sacrificial system served its purpose, but it pointed to and is fulfilled in me. Jesus is the subject. And the temple, and even before the temple, the tabernacle, this dwelling place of God, there in, in Sinai, and, and then in later in Shiloh, and then later in Jerusalem, and then when Solomon builds the temple, and later Zerubbabel comes back and rebuilds the temple, and when Herod builds the second temple, Jesus said there's one greater than the temple. The temple was great, the tabernacle was great, but it's, it's obsolete, it's not necessary anymore. And in the temple, this holy of holies, the very presence, dwelling place of God, separated from sinful man by a curtain, only one person could go into his presence. What Jesus does says that is no longer the case. Now God has access and people have access to each other because of what Christ has done. All of this was good, all of it's fulfilled in the subject, Jesus Christ, and all of it now becomes obsolete. And that's the good news for us. That we have the grace of Jesus. We have the life. We have access. We don't have to kill animals. We don't have to go through all of that stuff anymore. But it wasn't cheap and it wasn't free. And that's the deep valley I want us to talk about today. The price that brings this incredible good news. We're going to jump from Monday to Thursday of that week. If you're following in your scripture last week, we left off in chapter 11. We're going to jump to chapter 14 and 15. And what I want to do is I want to touch down briefly on three dark scenes in the last 18 hours of Jesus' life. There's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to have to just pass right over, but I want to touch down on three very dark scenes in the last 18 hours of Jesus' life. So we'll be in Mark chapter 14, Thursday night, I'll catch you up, Thursday night, he and his disciples have gathered in an upper room to celebrate the Passover. This is something these guys have done their entire life. Every year they celebrated the Passover as children with their families. And now they're doing this with Jesus, and they may have done this with Jesus for three years. But this one was different. As they celebrate the Passover and all the symbolism that points back to remembering what had happened in Exodus, Jesus is talking in ways that they don't understand. He's talking about a new covenant. What do you mean a new covenant? The covenant was made with Abraham. What do you mean a new covenant? And he's talking about a new covenant in his blood and the cup. And what does that have to do with anything? 
and that his body would be broken like the bread. But Jesus always talked in ways that they didn't understand. And then he washes their feet. They would never forget that moment. This was unthought of. It just couldn't imagine that Jesus would wash your feet. And then Judas leaves early, which who knows what that's about, but he's gone. And so here they are having this Passover. Now, I think that you can build a fairly strong case, not airtight and not, you know, biblical, but I think you can build a fairly strong case that this Passover meal, this upper room may have happened in the upper room of a house that was owned by a woman named Mary. We mentioned this in the very first week of the series. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, in the early church, there's a woman who lives in Jerusalem. She has a house big enough for the church to meet in her home. And if she was an early follower of Jesus, then it may have been her home because it's a big enough home and it's in Jerusalem. Mary also has a young son, probably a teenage son. His name is John, also referred to as... Mark. I just wanted to see if anyone was with me on that at all. So John Mark. Mark, the one who wrote this gospel that we've been going through. It is possible, and I think very possible, that Mark, it was in his home, his mom's house, that that upper room supper took place. We'll come back to that in a minute. So they've had the Passover feast, and then we pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. They left Jerusalem, went down across the Kidron Valley, down through that, and at the base of the foot of the Mount of Olives is this place called Gethsemane. It means oil press. There's the, the Mount of Olives, a lot of olives. This is where they would press them, where they would crush the olives. A lot of symbolism with that as well. And it's not the first time they've been to Gethsemane. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he says, you know, after the Passover, they went as usual to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. It sounds like every time Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, one of the places they went was this, this garden, this olive oil press. And if it was a private garden, maybe especially on this night, because remember, if you were here last week, hundreds and thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people have flooded into Jerusalem. This may have been the only place where there was some privacy and some quiet. But Jesus takes his 11 disciples across this valley to the foot of Mount of Olives, and there he goes to Gethsemane. Then it says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're like the inner circle with Jesus. They're the closest ones with Jesus. It's like they get some privileges. They get some experiences the other disciples don't get, and this is one of them, where Jesus has his 11 disciples with him. Judas is off. The 11 disciples are there, and he says, hey, you guys stay here. Peter, James, John, come with me. I find it interesting that this isn't the only time Jesus has pulled these three aside. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Brian was preaching, he talked about when Jesus pulled Peter, James, and John aside to another mountain, left the other disciples behind, and they went to the Mount of Transfiguration, which was literally and figuratively a mountaintop experience. Because there, Moses appears, Elijah appears, Jesus is there with clothes that are shimmering bright, whiter than any bleach could ever bleach them, and a cloud comes from heaven, and the voice of God speaks, and Peter, James, and John are witness to all of this, that Jesus has taken them to this zenith experience, this mountaintop experience, and now those same three he takes to this nadir, this low valley experience on a different mountain, the Mount of Olives. Not where there's a voice from God saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, but where there's deep distress and trouble. I don't know if you've ever met someone who just has a, 
a high uh, level of pain tolerance. Like no matter how, how sick they are, they just keep going. How much pain they are, they don't complain. There's a, there's a name for this group of people. They're called moms. They just, no matter what, they just keep going. They keep working. They're just, just amazing. And, you know, they, they don't need a lot of sympathy. They, or if you've ever met someone, it's just always up, just positive. Just good. Every day is a good day. Well, if you meet someone who has a high level, a, a high pain tolerance, just keeps going no matter what, and they're down and they're sick and they're in bed and they're complaining, you know it's bad because they're not given to dramatic demonstrations to try and get sympathy or attention. Or if someone who's always positive is having a real, like just really down, you know there must be something heavy, heavy going on because they don't do this for attention. Well, I think what we find here is that Jesus is never one given to dramatic expressions in order to get someone's sympathy or attention. So when Jesus says this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, stay here and keep watch. You know, never ever has this statement ever been more true than now that he carries the weight of the entire world on his shoulders. And he asked Peter, James, and John, would you stay here in this dark time? Would you pray with me? And he goes a little further to pray by himself. It's the, those gut-wrenching, agonizing prayers. God, if there's any way at all for this to, to pass for me, please take this cup, but not my will, yours be done. And he comes back, and Peter, James, and John are asleep. And he wakes him up, and he rebukes him and says, Guys, I, real, I need you. Please stick, stay awake. Watch with me here. Pray with me. And he goes away again, and he prays the same thing, and he's just, he's just pouring his heart out, and he comes back, and they're asleep again. Now... I think we need to give them a little grace because it's real easy to think those lousy disciples, they just had a huge meal. Their stomachs are full. It's late at night. They're quiet. They're out in this garden in the fresh air of the evening and they're left there and they're lounging. And besides, have you ever fallen asleep in prayer <laughs> or a sermon? <laughs> give them some grace. Some of you are waking up now saying, what did he say? Jesus goes again for the third time, and he pours out his heart, and he comes back. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. As we've mentioned over and over again, this is Jesus' favorite title that he uses for himself. And the title Son of Man has a double meaning. It's a two-sided coin. On the one hand, the reason he loves this is because it identifies him with us, that I'm one of you. I, in my humanity, I am a son of, of humanity. I have flesh and blood. I'm one of us. But it's also a messianic title that comes out of the book of Daniel and a vision that Daniel had. And he says that the, the son of man now is, is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And Judas shows up with this mob clubs and swords, probably, you know, torches and stuff, seen out of West Side Story. He's got this mob that comes with him. And what's interesting is while Jesus is in the garden, in the garden, Jesus is abandoned. When he needs people with him, when he needs his disciples with him, when he needs their support, when he needs their prayers, when he doesn't want to walk alone, he's abandoned. Uh, it's not a big surprise because he actually predicted it at dinner. He said to them, all of you will desert me. And Peter spoke up because Peter always speaks up. 
And he says, not me, Lord. They all will. Even if they were all to, to leave you, I will not leave you. I won't abandon you. I won't flee from you. And they're all like, yeah, we're with Peter. We're in. We're all. Verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And he's left all alone. Now, there's an interesting thing in the book of Mark that at this point, Mark puts something into his gospel that the other three gospel writers either felt was irrelevant or not important because Matthew, Luke, and John don't mention it at all. It's a little thing that only shows up in the book of Mark. And I wonder, what if? Here's what if. Go down this road with me. What if this Last Supper did happen in the house of Mary? And she has her teenage son named John Mark. And the disciples leave after dinner, and it's late. And so this teenage son goes to bed, puts on his pajamas, goes to bed. And what if Judas comes back with this mob to the last place he saw Jesus, comes back to the house, comes back to the upper room, and Jesus is not there? And the disciples are not there. But there's so many people with clubs and swords and all this, and there's a commotion. And young John Mark is awakened in the night with all these people, and he looks out trying to figure out what's going on, and he sees there's Judas. And Judas says, don't worry, don't worry. I know where he went. It's where we always go. And they left the house and started across the Kedron Valley. And what if at that point, a teenage Mark snuck out of the house? Not that any teenager would ever do anything like that. But a young teenage Mark sneaks out of the house, and he follows them and follows them in the shadows behind them. And they go to Gethsemane and he goes in there as well. And he's in the garden. And what if, just what if, while all of this is happening, Mark makes his way in and finds himself with Jesus. He records in his gospel these words. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, PJs, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, some of you say, why is that in the Bible? And apparently Matthew, Luke, and John said, that doesn't need to be in the Bible. But what if? What if it was Mark saying, I know I'm recording Peter's experiences with Jesus, but on this point, I want to tell you, I was there. I was that young man. I was a witness to it. And... Just like the disciples, I abandoned our Lord as well. I was afraid as well. And I ran out of there naked. And what if? What if there's a deeper meaning than just what Mark experienced? Because throughout the Bible, this idea of being naked carries with it this, this, this sense of exposure, being exposed, and, and our shame and our disgrace. And you see this all throughout scriptures. I won't bore you with a bunch of examples, just one. In Revelation, when Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea, he says, you know, you guys, this is my paraphrase, you can read it for yourself in Revelation 3. He says, you think you've got everything all together, but you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You're exposed, your, your shame and your disgrace. And in addition to that, what if it's even deeper than that? Maybe there's a message that says, there was another garden with some people who were exposed, filled with shame and disgrace. When Adam and Eve sinned, they found themselves naked and they were afraid. And maybe Mark's saying, not only am I no better than the disciples, I'm no better than Adam and Eve. 
Because in my sin, in my shame, in my disgrace, I ran and hid just like Adam and Eve did. And what if it's even deeper than that? What if it's saying, this is the human condition because every single one of us in our sin, we're exposed with our shame and our disgrace and we run and we hide from God. Maybe what Mark is saying is, yes, I experienced this, but every single one of us have experienced this because of our shame and our disgrace. We run naked away from our God. Well, they arrest Jesus, and it says this, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and teachers of the law came together. This is a group called the Sanhedrin. It's the ruling council of the Jewish uh, nation, the Sanhedrin. And they bring them. Now, there would be some people who would point to this verse and, and what happens following it and saying, this is why you cannot trust the validity of Scripture, especially the Gospels. Here's why. The Sanhedrin had a set of rules and laws that they followed. One of them, they would not meet on a holy festival, i.e. the Passover. Another, was their rule, is that they would not hold court or a trial at night. And some would say, see, there's no way that this is true. There's no way you can trust the Bible because the Sanhedrin wouldn't do this. I beg to differ. I think the high priests, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders were so desperate to get Jesus out of the picture, they were willing to break their own rules and their own laws to get rid of him. They were willing to say, we will leave our families on Passover night and come together. We will hold court at night, even though we've told ourselves we won't do this, we will do this in this instance. And another thing that happens here that maybe you've never thought about is that there are two guys in this group called the Sanhedrin that are in a really awkward position. One is a guy named Nicodemus, and the other is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. They're both a part of the Sanhedrin, but Nicodemus has gone to Jesus at night to hear more, and he's got a great deal of interest. And Joseph of Arimathea, the same. In fact, John says that some of the leaders were following Jesus secretly because they were afraid of this group. And I think for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're in an awkward position because they're a part of this group that they fear, but they're buying into this guy that's on trial. And in the midst of that trial, there's all kinds of false accusations and witness testimonies that, that negate each other and, and, and misquotations about Jesus. And the whole time, Jesus never defends himself. He never corrects them. He never speaks back. And in so doing, he fulfills a prophecy that was written 700 years before. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In quiet confidence... He allows the false accusations, the misquotes, the lies to fly. And Caiaphas, the high priest, says, aren't you going to answer? And he pushes back. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. Does that sound vaguely familiar? 
Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is standing before a burning bush and God gives him instructions and he says, whom shall I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Wait, wait, Jesus, are you saying, this isn't the only time he does this. There's another time when they say, are, are you saying you're greater than Abraham, our father? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Like, you can't say that. You're, you're claiming to be God. And here's Jesus on trial, and he's rejected. He's with the chief priests. He's with the high priests. He's with the teachers of the law. He's with the elders. Never before have you seen such an elite spiritual group that knew scripture better. These are the ones who knew all the prophecies. These are the ones who were looking for, longing for, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And he's right there in front of them and they reject him. Not only does he say, I am, but he takes it a step further. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man. Here he goes again with that title. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This time, however, he's not talking about his humanity. This time he's referring specifically to the messianic title that's found in Daniel. Because he says the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That's, that's the seat of judgment. He's claiming to be the one who will judge the world. And coming on the clouds of heaven, he's not talking about white fluffy clouds. He's not talking about cumulus clouds or stratus clouds or cirrus clouds. Maybe you remember when God shows up, there's this Shekinah glory that's described as a cloud. When, when he comes onto Mount Sinai, there's this cloud. When he comes to meet with Moses in the tabernacle, there's this cloud. When he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this cloud. And Jesus said, that cloud, I come in the Shekinah glory of God. What he claims here is quoting out of this messianic passage out of Daniel chapter 7. Maybe, I say this all the time, maybe it'd be helpful to, to look at that. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel tells about a vision he has. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. This is the first time it shows up in Scripture. Coming with the clouds of heaven, again, the glory of God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. All they know is the only one led into the presence of God these days is the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement. But this son of man will come in God's glory and be led right into his presence. And not only that, but this is how it describes this one that will come, the son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Wow, what a picture of this one who will come. What a picture of this son of man. And they know this scripture. And Jesus is claiming this is him. See, the son of man has in, in line with it this whole idea of sovereignty, that he is God almighty, that he is the sovereign one. Here he is, the judge of all creation, being judged by his creation. The one who will be worshiped by all nations, being mocked and ridiculed by God's nation. The one who has all authority, who is submitting and surrendering to the will of the Father, and the one who will rule and reign forever is being rejected by his own. 
Jesus is claiming to be God. And Caiaphas, his response is as we would probably expect. The high priest tore his clothes. It was an outer expression of, of the reality. He tears his clothes and says, enough! Like, no more! Stop! The, the horror of this, the grief of this, the, 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 the terror of what you're saying. He tears his clothes. And at that point, and we'll skip over a lot of this, they're done. In fact, they take a vote in the Sanhedrin, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guard took him and, and beat him. They'll take him. He'll have to go before Pilate, and some other things will happen throughout that night. We'll fast forward through all of that. Let's fast forward to chapter 15, verse 25. It says this. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, some of you are aware of this, but let me just kind of get us all on the same page. In Jewish thinking, the day started at 6 a.m. That's when they started counting hours. This is simple math. The day started at 6 a.m. It's the third hour. What time is it? Oh, you guys are good in math. 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m., and they crucified him. A Roman crucifixion. Rome had not created crucifixion, but they had perfected it. They had made it the most agonizing, painful, slow, humiliating death imaginable. It was a torturous death. In fact, our word excruciating, literally translated, out of the cross. And our Lord is crucified. But here's the thought. It's not like Jesus was the only one who was ever crucified. It's not like he's the only Jewish person that was ever crucified. Thousands of Jewish people had been crucified and would be. Some of his followers, some of his disciples would be crucified. I in no way want to diminish the physical pain, but Jesus wasn't the only one that had gone through that. His crucifixion on a physical level was painful, no doubt. But it wasn't that unusual within a bigger group of people. There was something else beyond the physical pain of that cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was cursed. I find it interesting. One week earlier, everyone is saying, blessed is he, comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, blessed. And now, he's cursed. And when I say he's cursed, it's not just like, oh man, it's just a horrible way to end his life and ministry and kind of a black mark on his record. Not that at all. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says specifically that one that is hung on a tree is not just cursed in society, is cursed of God. In fact, Paul references this passage in Deuteronomy when he writes a letter to the followers of Christ in the, in the region of Galatia. He writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The curse of God. Now, there's something I need you to hold on to because we're going to have a quiz here in a few minutes. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. I am going to ask you in a few minutes 
a one-question quiz. I'm giving you the question now. I'm going to ask this question. What did Paul say Christ redeemed us from? And you're going to answer, if you want to answer the right answer, you're going to answer... Yeah. I'm going to ask a question. <laughs> what did Paul say Christ redeemed us from? And you're going to say... Okay, hold on to that. You can get an A on this quiz. It is so easy. And Christ became a curse. So at 9 a.m., they nail him to the cross. And then something happens. At the sixth hour, do the math. What time are we talking about now? Noon, 12. Okay. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. From 12 to 3, the whole land grows dark. And there's a physical darkness, but I think that's only part of it. On the surface, yes, things grow dark, but there is a much deeper spiritual darkness that's happening in these hours. See, up to this point, Jesus, the Son of Man, who identifies with us, with us in our humanity, experienced everything there is to experience as a human. As the creator of the universe, he's experienced things that we can't even experience. He's experienced everything as God and everything as, as a human except one thing. He's not experienced sin and the consequences of it. And in this moment, he not only experiences sin... But scripture said, he who knew no sin became sin. He doesn't just experience sin, he becomes the incarnation, or shall we say, the sin carnation. Sin manifest in humanity. He becomes sin. And he who's never known the curse of the separation from God because of sin, the consequence of sin, not only experiences a curse, he becomes a curse. It's no wonder that the, the earth grew dark. It wasn't just the sun went behind a cloud. There's something happening in the cosmos, in the spiritual realm, that has never happened before. And I don't have the mental capacity to understand this. I'm just telling you right up front. I can't fully understand this. There is one God. There is just one God. He manifests himself as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there's only one God. And at this point, somehow, this God who is one, who has been unified as one for all of eternity, infinitely, somehow there's this, this disintegration of the oneness of God as Father and Son, and somehow there's this separation where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness comes across the entire planet as he becomes a sin, as he becomes a curse, as he's ripped apart from the Father. Little rabbit trail. In Exodus, the Hebrew people have been held in captivity and bondage. And God decides to give them liberation and freedom and life. And in order to get them free, he sends these plagues. The ninth plague that he sends is darkness for three days, followed by the tenth plague, which was the death of a firstborn son, which resulted in their liberation and freedom. Jesus is on the cross, not for three days, but for three hours. It grows dark, culminating in the death of the only begotten Son of God which resulted in liberty and freedom and life. And Jesus' body is put into the dark tomb of death for three days. But on the third day, 
He doesn't die, but he comes, as it says in Colossians 1.18, as the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. Jesus is the subject. Isn't that amazing? Amen. And he comes back victorious over death and the grave, bringing salvation to all of us. Well, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross for six hours, he takes my penalty, takes your penalty. Becomes sin, becomes a curse, separated from God. And then something happens. Do you remember when Caiaphas, the high priest, had had enough? What did he do? What did he do? He tore his clothes. Okay. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed out his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as if God says, enough! No more! That's it! This separation of a holy God from sinful people, no more. What Christ has done is taken care of that. I'm done with it. And he tears the temple veil from top to bottom, giving us access into his, into his throne, into his grace, without a priest, without a sacrifice, without the temple, without the law, through Jesus Christ. He says, that's enough. You're welcome because of what Christ has done for you. What he's done on the cross but that's not all that happened at that moment. Matthew records this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. That there was something happening in the spiritual realm where the spiritual tectonic plates are moving, that it affects the physical realm and the physical tectonic plates are moving and there's an earthquake. Can I talk for just a minute about the earthquake and the law? The earthquake in the law, because some of you may remember, at your blank, by the way, some of you may remember in Exodus chapter 19, when God is preparing to give Moses the law, the glory of God comes down upon Mount Sinai and the whole mountain trembles. The earth shakes. There's an earthquake as God establishes his, his law set in stone. He gives the law and the earth is quaking as he says this is the law. Here's a quiz for you. What is it that the Apostle Paul said Christ redeemed us from? Yeah, what's that about? I mean, if the law was given by God and if it was set in stone, how could there be a curse of the law? And Paul says, I'll tell you, you can read this in Romans. Paul says, the law was powerless to save me. The law was powerless to transform me. You know what the law did? The law showed me how guilty I was. The law showed me how much I screwed up. The law showed me how much I failed. The, 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 the law was like this burden. It was the curse of the law. And God set it in stone with an earthquake. And when Jesus died, it's fulfilled in the blood. Romans chapter 10 says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, I don't want to have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want the righteousness that is from Christ and is by faith. I can't do it on my own. I'm not good enough. I can't try hard enough, work hard enough, be disciplined enough. I can't do it. None of us can. And that was the curse of the law, set in stone, but fulfilled in blood. Now, why would God do all of this? 
Why is all of this necessary? And God is altogether good. And a good God who is holy and righteous and just cannot allow evil to go unpunished. He would not be good otherwise. But a good God who is loving and gracious and merciful would forgive. But how do you bring these two together? I mean, we see them as polar opposites. Either God's just and holy and righteous, or he's loving, gracious, and forgiving. John Stott said this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. I'll step in, I'll make the call, I'll call the shots, I'll, 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 you know, I'm in charge here. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That what we see in the cross is the self-substitution of God. That as a holy God, there must be punishment. But he says, I'll take that punishment on my son. That as humans, we, we assert, against, assert ourselves against this God and take a position that only he is allowed and deserves to be in. And God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself in a position that only we deserve to be put in. And we've, we see this in Romans chapter 3. For all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God, all of us run naked in our shame and our disgrace, hiding from God. All of us. And all of us are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Not in what you did, not in the law, not in keeping all the rules. It's faith in what Christ has done. Now, why would, why would God do this? He says, well, let me tell you. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To be a holy, just, righteous God, evil must be punished. I am just. I will demonstrate that. And I will take the punishment so that I can be the justifier as well. Jesus gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. Not a very fair substitution, but it sure is beautiful. You know, I've talked about the, the servant songs of Isaiah Starting about 42 through 53, there's four of these poems about the servant of Yahweh. The one most of us are most familiar with is Isaiah 53. And I want us to read this. I want you to look at, look at the substitution. What's our part and what is God's part in this whole thing? It says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the substitution over and over again in there? This is what's referred to as substitutionary atonement. Big theological phrase. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus steps in and takes our punishment. He substitutes himself for us. 
And the result of that, another big theological word, is expiation, not expialidocious. Expiation, which means my guilt is taken away. X, taken away. My guilt is expiation, is taken away. And there's a propitiation, which means that God's wrath is satisfied against the evil, and there's justice that is served. Now, we can sit around all day and try and impress each other with four, five, and six-syllable words, talking theology, but that's not why Jesus went to the cross. We need to take it from theology and make it personal. And we've done this before, but I want us to do it again. I want us to go back to this passage, and I want us to make it personal. And I'm going to ask you to read this with me out loud. And every time a word is in yellow, I want you to emphasize it, not because it's in yellow and I want you to emphasize it, but to make it personal. Would you read this with me out loud? Surely he took up my infirmities and carried my sorrows. Yet I considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of me. See, Jesus was abandoned so we could be adopted. Jesus was rejected so we could be accepted. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. He took on the wrath of God so that we could have the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God. That is the beauty and the horror of the cross. That is the glory and the trauma of the cross. That is the bitterness and the darkness of death becoming the sweetness and the light of life in Jesus Christ for us. Because God is good, his justice is satisfied for the full punishment for sin. The full punishment. God is just. The wrath has been appeased because he is holy and he is just. And as a loving God, the love has been satisfied with a full provision for salvation. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that some would say the key verse in the entire gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. It says, and here's the title again, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And maybe we could read that as a ransom for me. For me. That he would do that. Here's what I want for us this holy week is that we don't skip from the palm parade Hosanna to the pastel party of He is Risen without spending some time in the valley to reflect on the price that was paid. Not to make us feel guilty, not to make us feel bad, but to humble us and to enhance our worship, to recognize that a God who loves us that much is worthy to be submitted to and surrendered to because He will do anything for us, for our good.